Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Hello and welcome to a We Have Ways Festival Dry podcast special. This was recorded at the weekend of the 8th to the 10th of September at Black Pit Brewery at We Have Ways Festival Dry in the HQ tent. Um, right, so uh, we have, a, we have a, a bit of a treat for you now. Um, now, uh, you're, you're probably aware on the podcast we don't, we don't often get into sort of cultural questions around the Second World War. Um, uh, but, but actually, um, if the Second World War is one thing... It's the first pop culture war, I think. Um, it exists in media in, in a completely new way. You've got radio, you've got film. And we've often talked, Jim and I have often talked about how Allied commanders in particular are pre- pretty preoccupied with how they're projecting themselves through media and how they're making use of things like picture posts to communicate their command message, mainly to people at home, to reassure the populations at home that their men are in good hands and all that sort of stuff. We've talked about it a lot, but what we... What we've not ever done, or, well, or James did very recently, is talked about music. And when you consider how central music is to our lives, we live in a world now where you, can't, you can't, basically can't avoid music. There's music absolutely everywhere. If you stand in the right place in a shopping mall, you can stand at a perfect fugue of every different kind of pop music all at once if you want, if that's what you want to do. So, but, but pop music um, is a feature of the Second World War. And... Uh, when you want to talk about pop music, you'd really need to go to, and we agreed on this, didn't we? Music writing legend. <laughs> <laughs> um, cultural uh, uh, connoisseur and uh, critical eye, um, uh, David Hepworth. So please welcome to the stage to talk about Top of the Pops in the Second World War, David Hepworth, ladies and gentlemen. 
<laughs> Thank you. And you wave me goodbye. Start at the top, right? Gracie, Gracie there's probably there's probably uh, pigeons dropping out the sky now. For the, <laughs> the, she could hit notes that no human being could I hear. Mean, famously loathed by Spike Milligan as well. He absolutely <laughs> despised. Well, yes, actually, he was really exposed to more than his share of uh, <laughs> of the the works of R. Gracie. Because it was R. Gracie. That's the important yeah. thing. So who who was she? Well, he, she was, uh, you know, she was a star from Lancashire, you know, but she was pretty much a child star, you know, and, uh, and always made a big thing about singing about the, the place that she came from, even the extent of turning into a kind of fantasy place, you know. Yeah. It's one of the things that intrigues me about um, popular music during the Second World War is that the, the two biggest stars are... R. Gracie and R. George, yeah. both of whom came come from pretty much the same postal code in in Lancashire. You know, yeah. so, so everybody grew up with this idea that there was some cobbled street in Lancashire where sound individuals, you know, what I mean, with, with hearts of oak, yeah. were uh, you know, keeping the, keeping the home fires burning and all that kind of thing. And it it still lingers on, I think. That. Yes, I mean, it, they're not Oasis, though, are they? I mean, it's <laughs> <laughs> yes, nobody ever calls Oasis, you know, Hearts of Oak, do they, really? But she, she was, I mean, the, the, the interesting thing, though, isn't it, is because radio, radio is so central to, to every aspect of the Second World War, it, we, very often people talk about Churchill using radio to communicate, um, you know, certainly 1940s, sort of message of defiance to the British population and tell them exactly how deep shit they're in and, and, and all that sort of stuff. But, but music, is, music is everywhere in the war, isn't it? Well, it's interesting to contrast the First World War, of course, right. where you didn't have radio. You had records and, uh, you know, officers would very often be, you would be encouraged to buy, there was a particular brand of wind-up radiogram, I don't know if you've seen this, called the Trench Decker. You can still see adverts for these. And, you know, you could buy one for your, your officer's son for him to take, which is mind-boggling to think that anybody actually turned up in a trench with a thing like that. And probably about 10 highly breakable records. Yeah. Uh, you know, but it actually did go on because obviously there was no radio. Radio comes along between the two wars. Yeah. And so, you know, the Second World War is, as you say, very definitely a radio war because radio was a technology that everybody could afford, you know, yeah. so it wasn't just, it wasn't just upper middle class people or, or whatever. Um, and what had happened in the, the, the recording industry in, in the interwar years? Because that's the, you, you know, we've got the invention of the gramophone, you've got records being made to one, you know, bands performing in, one, in a room with one microphone at the other end of the room and all, and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. What's going on in the recording industry? Because we're on, still on 78s, aren't we? Oh, definitely on 78s. So, you know, there are children here, so we're going to have to... <laughs> so Abbey, Abbey Road, which I wrote the book about, Abbey Road Studios opens in 1931. Right. Uh, and the, the big, you know, pop-tastic pop star they get in to open it is Sir Edward Elgar. <laughs> you know, 
playing his latest hot tune, Land of Hope and Glory. You know? right. And it's, I do recommend anybody who hasn't seen it, go and look on YouTube. There is actually a clip of him doing it, turning up there. And it's a wonderful touch. First of all, he has his overcoat re- removed from his shoulders by his valet. You know, those were the days, you know. Yeah, I, I, ours couldn't make it this afternoon. <laughs> I definitely had one on my rider. Um. <laughs> so, you know, they, saw the, they, they built out of your own studios because they had a big garden at the back that was big enough to build an enormous studio, pretty much the size of this yeah. hangar. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, that was for recording the classical catalogue, you know, so that's what they mainly did. But then there were a couple of other studios, smaller ones, and Studio 2, which was rather sniffily referred to as the pop studio, right. which is where the dance bands did their, did their work, you know, and their crews and so forth. And of course, that was the studio that was years later made famous yeah. for its use by the Beatles, you know. Yeah. But there was very definitely a schism between serious music and popular music. Yeah. And the Second World War really brought this to a head because <laughs> and these, these discussions took place uh, at the top of the BBC as to what kind of music would most you know, be suitable to, to keep, the, keep people going throughout the war. You know, should it be stirring martial stuff? It tended to be in the, fir- in the first lot. Yeah. But actually, what people say, no, what goes down better with people is, is sentimental music, really. And so, sentimental one, yeah. pretty much, you know. And this is partly to do with the technology, because in the 30s, you get the development of the electrical microphone. Yes. And with the electrical microphone, you get a completely new breed of singers. Yeah. Bing Crosby. Yeah. Al Bowley over here. Yeah, yeah. And the beauty of these people, because of the technology, they could sing into your ear. Yeah. They were confidential. They weren't shouting from you know, the far end through a megaphone. You yeah. know? So it produced a very different kind of, this music is for you. Yeah. This well, is your personal thing. Because uh, 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 a microphone, um, uh, and I, I, can't, I can't for the life of me remember the name of the, of the effect, but the crew will. When you lean into a, a cardoid microphone, which is the, which is the capsule, you, um, the, it's called the proximity effect, it, isn't it, lads? Yes. And, it, and, and what it does is it brings out the lower tones and the warmer lower tones of the voice. And Bing Crosby is one of the people who twigged this and realised if he leant into the microphone, it would honey up his voice and make his voice warmer and more appealing. And that, that's, that's, a, that's a, an innovation that where he takes to the technology to, to create a singing style. Absolutely. And he does it in, in the United States enormously successfully. Yeah. But, but of course his main way of getting to people is still the radio. You yep. know what I mean? Because there was, there were very often, there was a controversy as to whether it was a good idea to have people hear your record on the radio. Wouldn't it be better for them to hear it on the radio or go and buy the record? And so you very often get Bing Crosby records that are labelled not for radio play at all. Absolutely. Really? Not allowed. Yeah. So the, the model is constantly changing over the years. Gosh, you know? That's fascinating. How, how do you promote that record? Do you say there's a new record being well, just I to go and buy it? I, I, I think in those days he was probably making more money out of his radio broadcasts yeah. every week. He was more bothered about that than he was about selling records. Yeah. You know, the model within the music business changes all the time. And the BBC... Uh, 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 as ever, are between the artist and the listener, and the uh, the BBC, its it, its existence is controversial anyway because 
The Daily Mail had set up a radio station. Yeah. Um, that, that, they did, I think, one broadcast with Dame Nellie Melba <laughs> and, uh, and then were shut down. They couldn't get the license. The government didn't want people using radio because they thought radio was a defence um, uh, uh, technology. Technology. Um, so when, it, when, when you do get, and this is all happening in the 30s, when you do get to the war, as you say, they're deciding what kind of music, but they're, still, they're plainly deciding what even to do with radio at this point. Yeah, well, they were very, they, 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 the nation that was most advanced with radio in the 30s was, of course, Germany. Yeah. Um, you know, and because they had pioneered magnetic tape, yep. which was a mystery to anybody in, in the United States or, or, in, or in Britain, you know, and was only introduced into Britain at the end of the war when, you know, the, the American army found it, pretty yeah. much. This looks clever. This is how they've been doing Hitler's speeches all over Germany, all the, way through the, all the way through the 30s and the war. So the Germans were definitely in the, in the kind of uh, vanguard of, uh, yeah. of, of sound technology. Yeah. Um, but, you know, the, there, is, there is always that tension within the BBC which still exists today, completely. between what's good for people and uh, what we consider good for people uh, and, um, and the horrible, horrible habits that they have on their own if they're left to their own devices. Exactly, yeah. the, stuff that, uh, the stuff they like. The uh. stuff they like. <laughs> um, I mean, although this doesn't mean that Gracie Fields is like a grime star, the equivalent of a... I mean, maybe she is. I mean, this, <laughs> that, because this is the other thing I think you always... Uh, one, one of the issues I have very often listening to this music is I, I have no feeling of cultural connection with it. It, it. it sounds, because of the way it's been recorded, because of the way it's sort of been given to us through television and things, it, always, it feels very, very old-fashioned. It feels to me like a, a music from, a, from completely from another planet. But the thing to bear in mind is at the time, you know, this is, these are hot tunes. These are absolute bangers. These are the, the way we feel about music now. You see, I think it's more than that. You know, because the, the one of the reasons I wanted to write this book is I think there's an enormous difference and a difference that people do not sufficiently recognise between a song and a record. Oh, yeah. And a song is a set of instructions. Yeah. A record is a particular performance captured at a particular time yep. and a record has qualities that a song alone can't have yep. a record has atmosphere it can, be, it can be strange it can be seductive, it can be funny all those kind of things I was in the classic case of I got asked to do a thing not long ago where they said tell us a record that changed your life and I always hate these things you know? yeah, yeah. So people always turn up and they go anarchy in the UK yeah, or, yeah. No, I always do the teddy bears picnic because because the point is, everybody in here today can close their eyes now and can hear the teddy bears picnic in their head. Picnic time for teddy bears. And... I love that song. They, but they won't just be hearing any old version. They'll be hearing the version by Henry Hall. Yep. And the vocals by a guy whose name I can't even remember. Yeah, yeah. And, and the thing about that record as opposed to the song, is it is, I think, simultaneously really comforting and really spooky. Yes. It's the two things at the same, same time. Well, my, my uh, you know, Proustian Madeline record, if, if that's what we're talking about, yeah. is, is the, the Laughing Policeman. 
Well, there you go. Which is funny and really, like, creepy at the same time. And I used to... I used to my grandfather had headphones, and uh, obviously this was a, clearly a, a child-quelling measure, but um, uh, he, I would, he would go, do you want to listen to The Laughing Policeman? I'd put the headphones, and I'd listen to it over and over and over again. The, the Henry Penrose version. Absolutely. And, and, and that is a... It's not the song. It, it, it's the recording. It's the moment, and then your relationship with that music. And it's also records. We listen to them again and again and again, and therefore we internalise them. Yeah. I always say, we know the records better than the people who made them. Yes. Because we've his, listened to them probably thousands of yeah, times. Yeah. You know, if you take I don't know whatever is your oldest favourite from when you were twelve years old. Yeah. It probably is thousands of times. Well, well Phil Collins said that um, when people come up to him and say, "Oh, Christ, Susudio again," he says, "I only recorded it once." I did it once. I heard it once. I made it once, and then it's done, and it's gone, and you know, and he doesn't even like it either. He's no, over it. No, no, no. Uh, but, but you've all, we've all heard it a million times. We've heard it. So and, uh, and uh, uh, sorry. No, no, no. Go on. And. Uh, you know, I think the thing we, we really underestimate nowadays is just how closely people used to listen to things. Yeah. Because, you know, my grandchildren nowadays grow up hearing something with the, the uh, you know, expectation that if they want to stop it, they can stop it. Yeah. And if they want to hear it again, they can hear it again. Yeah. That didn't exist no. until quite recently. Yeah. And, you know, particularly in the days of the BBC, even in the 60s, BBC, because of needle-tie agreements with the Musicians' Union, would only play like six records a day. So the rest of it would all be taken up with Ross McManus, the father of Elvis Costello, singing cover versions with the Northern Dance Orchestra or the Joe Lewis Orchestra. Wow. If you wanted to hear I Can Tina Turner... It was like, it would appear like a, a surprise. Oh my God, it's halfway through. And I'm never going to hear it again for another, for another two weeks. So consequently, you listen really closely. Yeah. Well, okay. Uh, that, that's setting me up for... Let's, here's a, a record I'd like to listen to really closely from our little playlist here. Um, because this is, I think, one of the, one of the most brilliant uh, records from the Second World War. Um, that, uh, from one of the most brilliant artists this country's ever produced, and it is this. Don't let me be split to the Germans when our victory is ultimately won. It was just those nasty Nazis who persuaded them to fight, and their Beethoven and Bach are really far worse than their bite. Let's be meek to them and turn the other cheek to them and try to bring out their latent sense of fun. <laughs> let's give them full air parity and treat the rats with charity, but don't let's be beastly to the Huns. I mean, <laughs> it's a masterpiece. It's an absolute masterpiece. I mean, talk about, you know, uh, 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 a stiletto in a velvet glove. Yeah. This man, everything about Noel Coward, who he is, the, the way he's, the way, I mean, I, you know, speaking as a, someone who, uh, uh, you know, does comedy, to be able to deliver a joke and a piece of satire that deftly, oh, the sheer power of, the, of it, uh, uh, and... 
I mean, what's interesting is several people then knew, knew this by heart, knew this word for word, but this, this record was profoundly controversial at the time. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Because he was, he was playing with, you know, ideas that were around in society. I mean, yeah, you know, yeah. oh, it, we've got to make up with them one day and yeah. so forth. And people, you know, certainly the powers that be couldn't accept that it was, it was just a joke. And yeah. if you do a joke, you're going to go into those kind of areas. The thing that I love about that is it propagates the, the strand of the English character yeah. that I think emerged from World War II, where I realise it's not my special subject, but I've watched a lot of war films. Um, Serve these people. <laughs> Which is the idea that the Germans kind of... Have, the, the real problem is they have no sense of humour. Yeah. Never mind anything else. Get really, you know what yeah. I mean? And so we don't let things get out, out of proportion. You know, so, so many... And this applies to so many of the, of the kind of... Uh, so much of the popular music yeah. of, of that era. It was kind of modest and domestic. Yeah. And Ealing comedy like, yeah. you know what I mean? And contained. It was. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, like the um, one of the, the Gracie Field songs that is most associated with the Second World War is, bizarrely enough, the biggest aspidistry in the world. Yeah, luckily that's not on here. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I mean, what on earth is that about? Well, it was just aspidistry just became a funny, funny idea. Everybody joked about aspidistries. And then eventually a song was written about Aspie District. Yeah. And she recorded this before the war, and it was a big success. Such a big success that she recorded it again during the war. Right. And during the war, she'd had to, she went to Los Angeles because her husband was Italian and would have been interned. interned yeah. And uh, so she re-recorded it. <laughs> and in order to make it clear it's being done for the war effort, I think the final verse has some disobliging comments about Adolf Hitler at the end. <laughs> but it's, it's, the, it's, the, you know, it's the idea of Adolf Hitler and the Aspidistra. You yeah. know what I mean? That what you're really taking on, what you're taking on here is the English front room. Yeah. You know what I mean? And we, yeah. we take this kind of stuff really seriously, you know? And, uh, and so these, these the, our heroes and heroines yeah. from that period were very much domesticated figures and it's because it is a period of sort of national imagining isn't it um necessarily because of the war because i mean what you look at is um what you can see before the war is modernist artists looking for a mode of expression that is english whatever that means and then the war comes along they're sort of forced into it by by the question being asked of what are we fighting for our country well then what is our country what does it amount to you get political outcomes from that like, which manifest themselves in the beverage report and then the welfare state and the, and the National Health Service and, and basically the, the sort of creation of a post-imperial Britain. But, but also that expression is happening through music and yeah. through these ordinary, star, ordinary people, stars. And I suppose it probably influences the great boom in films, in Ealing films, yeah. just after the war, many of which were actually made by people who are not English, were yeah. they? Who are intuiting this idea yeah. that the English like the idea of their small communities, their, you know, their, their little routine, they don't yeah. like anything ruffling it, you yeah. know, and that this is worth defending. 
you know. Yes. Is, um, is a quite, it's a very powerful idea, you know. Yeah, well, I, mean, it's, I mean, it's particularly powerful in the case of Noel Coward because he wasn't an English gentleman. He, he, he's a guy from West London, wasn't he? A yeah. working-class lad from West London who invented himself as, as this fellow who took like this. this is, I wanted you know. to do a radio programme about this years ago. I was always fascinated by this, that people used to pretend to be posher than they are, and now they pretend to be less posh than they are. Yeah. You know, kind of moved the other way. And so Noel Coward, as you so rightly say, Jesse Matthews, just the same thing. Yeah. Came from Soho. Spoken yeah. this extraordinary cut glass voice. You know, you know, George Martin's a good example after the war. George Martin, one of those classic characters, changed by his experience in the forces. Yeah. He was a son of a joiner from Holloway Road. Did he go and fleet air arm? I think, yes, yes. I think he did. And he was trained, you know, commissioned as an officer. And he came home as a different person. Yeah. And when he got his job at Abbey Road, he was instantly taken as officer class, you know what I mean? And, uh, and so that still pertained when, he, when they met the Beatles, when he met the Beatles, because they still deferred to him. Because really? A, he was really tall, <laughs> and which made a difference. Yeah. <laughs> and B, he seemed, he seemed like officer class. I've got to th- while we're talking about George Martin, I've got to throw in this, because I think people might appreciate this. He did a comedy record with um, Spike Milligan and the young Peter Cook and various people yeah. in, in the very early 60s. And it was a pastiche of Bridge on the River Kwai, because okay. that had been the big film. And then somebody said, shouldn't we check with the film company whether it's all right to do this? <laughs> which, is, which we all know is a really bad idea. Yeah, never do that. Never ask permission, always ask forgiveness. You know. But anyway, uh, he went and asked permission and were told they couldn't do it. So thanks to the tape, he went through the entire thing, removing the hard K at the beginning of, of, of Kwai. Kwai. So you can still buy today Bridge on the River Y. <laughs> wow. But he took all of the, I mean, the, I mean we're, we're, we could end up going down the Beatles wormhole here, but he took all of those recording techniques that he had from comedy records and that, that's how he was able to then make Sergeant Pepper and, and all that stuff came from tape yeah. and all that stuff came from the German experience with, with tape you yeah. know with yeah. the, during the 30s should we um, now there's another uh, Noel Coward record that, you, oh. that you, 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 you on the podcast you brought your attention to which I think um, will finally settle the MG42 Bren Gun argument <laughs> <laughs> Colonel Montmorency, who was in Calcutta in 92, emerged from his retirement for the war. He wasn't very pleased with all he heard and all he saw, but whatever he felt, he tightened his belt and organized a corps. Poor Colonel Montmorency thought, considering all the wars he'd fought, the Home Guard was his job to do or die. But after days and weeks and years, bravely drying his manly tears, he wrote the following letter to the Minister of Supply. Could you please oblige us with the brand gun, or failing that a hand grenade will do? <laughs> We've got some ammunition in a rather damp condition, and Major Hutt has an arquebus that was used at Waterloo. <laughs> with the biggest to the pump. Masterpiece. It's, I mean, you know. And they must have just gone into the studio and just did that. Yeah. Nobody played with that afterwards. No. Because they were recording direct to disc. Yes, that's a performance. And if you did did it wrong, (laughs) they, you know, people's memories of the very early days of recording are of the smell of sweat. Yeah. Because the 
you know, the, the pressure was on. If, if you were the person that, if you were the violin that came in too early on the chorus, everybody had to start all over again. Yeah. The thing had to be broken up and started yeah. again. Yeah. And they were clearly just, these were consummate artists, these people. Yeah. They wouldn't have regarded themselves as artists. They would have thought of themselves as craftspeople. Yes, craftsmen, yeah, craftsmen. Yeah. But they were absolutely astonishing what I mean, they the, could do. The, what I was, I mean, the, you know, the, the, for want of a better way of expressing this, the groove on those records, the, the sort of very, very tidy uh, rhythm of the understated uh, rhythm of the band, the way it's all very sort of contained. Absolutely. And then and, uh, uh, as an expression of ca Coward's uh, persona. Yeah. The, 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 how well that, those are matched and then how well, how, I mean, his, his facility with rhyme. It's incredible. And, and comedy. The rhymes, the rhymes all make, make perfect sense and serve the joke and deliver the persona and everything all at once. I mean, he's, he's such a genius. But in that song, he's saying the home guard's got no weapons. Well, it looks like we're in trouble. I mean, it's an, extraordinary, it's an extraordinary thing to do. It's a brilliant thing to do. And I, one of the many, every time I listen to it, something different strikes me. And, and there it's just the word oblige. Mm. It's just... That's a brilliant word yeah. to pick. Well, you, you know, don't get obliging songs anymore, do you? <laughs> you don't at all. It's, it's see you on the floor at the club, isn't it? <laughs> don't oblige me on the floor at the club. <laughs> it's a different record. Um, the, now, there, there, are, there, are, there are big stars and stars whose names we remember, but then there's the odd um, person along the way, like... Al Bowlby. Oh, really? It's Al Bowlby. Oh, right. Well, Al Bowlby is, uh, was, was Britain's Bing Crosby, really, although he wasn't strictly British. He, he arrived in Britain in the, yeah. in the early 30s. And he was the first British crooner, you know, and, uh, and sang with loads of the dance bands, you know, Ray Noble and all, all these kind of people. And uh, actually, with Ray Noble, was, was such a big star was invited to go to New York in the late 30s to be the resident band in the ballroom at top Rockefeller Center. Blimey. You, you can't imagine a more prestigious gig than yeah. this. Yeah. And they did that, did that for quite a while, you know. But obviously when he, um, when he came, back to, came to, back to Britain when the war was declared, his star had, had somewhat waned, you know. And so he was... Um, he used to go out with, uh, with this guy called Jimmy Mazarine and uh, two guys, one with a guitar or whatever. And I think the, one of the last things he recorded at Abbey Road was a duet on a song called When That Man Is Dead and Gone, yeah. uh, which was an Irving Berlin song. Yeah. And of course, that man was Adolf Hitler. Yeah. And, uh, and that's a very rare case of a directly kind of propagandist song being used and then he was doing gigs he still did gigs during the blitz of course you know as we know that there the very many musical artists lost their lives in the blitz you know yeah. and ken snake hips johnson who was killed when the bomb landed on cafe de paris in Comfort yeah. street in 1941 there's a film just being made about this at the moment is steve it? mcqueen is just making a film about really? it um, but anyway al Bowley. Um, still lived in some style in St. James's and was doing a gig out in Reading that night and they said London's due for a nasty raid why don't you stay in Reading 
in Mrs. Mrs. Malloy's boarding house or whatever. And he said, no, I'm going to go home. And he went home and, and was killed in was the raid. Killed in the raid in, 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 in German Street, I think. Yeah. So he's, in a, in a sense, a, lo- a lost star of the war. Absolutely. We, he, yeah, there's a great Richard Thompson song, which you probably know, called Al Bowley's in Heaven and yeah. I'm in Limbo Now. Yeah. You know, it's about soldiers coming yeah. back, you know, that, that yeah. they survived and Al Bowley yeah. didn't, yeah. you know. Um, and, of course, this is the other thing about the connection between the singers, the songs, and the people listening, that, you know, all things like we'll meet, songs like we'll meet again, yeah. and when the lights go on all over the world, you know, we, we, we have some distance on them nowadays. We think, oh, that's kind of charming, cute idea. Yeah. For these people, this was their lives. Yeah. It mattered like mad, you know what I mean? Yeah. And so you hear all these, these records of Gracie Fields particularly, um, recorded with, um, she would go and record with the troops. And so Gracie with the troops, somewhere in England, whatever. Yeah. And she would sing something. And then you would hear on the final chorus, the, 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 the mildly at first, in. you know, yeah. guys joining in. And I always think that was a huge part of the magic of that stuff for people. So people listening to the record or on the radio, thinking that, that might be my son. There, yeah, you know, it was some kind of representation, some link between her and and the troops. And of course, she did. She's doing loads of stuff like that. And George Formby also, yes, did a huge amount of uh, of their stuff with the troops. Yeah, I, and he's, I mean, he's a he's he's an interesting character anyway. <laughs> After the war, they go to South Africa, don't they? And, and his 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 wife has a terrible argument <laughs> about about um, segregation and stuff. And, and <laughs> Tells all sorts of people to fuck off, doesn't she? It's, she's, she's George Formby's wife is quite an amazing character. Yes, um, uh, 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 mind you, George is a pre is a piece of work. Should we well. have a little listen? <laughs> <laughs> to cancel George for me there. It, it's a reminder of the fact that this was in the days before mass tourism, wasn't it? it yeah. Was, that the only mass tourism you were doing was courtesy of the British Army. Yeah. Was sending you someplace, you know. It, it caused, I can't, can never get over it when I come to something like this. And I see most of the gentlemen wearing shorts and I realised my father, who served in the Second World War, did not own a pair of shorts. Right. Because he always associated it with his time, his time, it's in, the time in the war. It was never leisure wearing shorts at all. It was something you were forced to do. You know. Really? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Oh. Did not own one single pair. That's brilliant. I mean, the thing is, I mean, I think one of the interesting things, 
that's coming through it, it, with, with some of these songs is the humour in that is, I mean, edgy is a, a, and I cannot bear conversations about edgy comedy. Um, the, 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 they're boring mainly. But he's he's walking quite a quite a a, oh, a, a broad line, isn't it? It's, it's well, he had to make. Yeah, they had to do stuff that was popular. Yeah. You know, given the choice between is it going to go down well in the Barrett Room, yep. or is it going to be all right with the powers that be at the BBC? They pick the Barrett Room yeah. every single time. Yeah. Because they knew these were people. These were hugely, you know, experienced, popular entertainers. Yeah. They knew what worked and what didn't work. And also, they would have teams of songwriters punting material at them absolutely all the time. Yes. You know, and tweaking it to get it right. But, um, you know, it's, uh, George, is, George Formby remains one of the weirdest figures in popular entertainment. You know? Yeah, yeah. You know, don't give me Jonathan Richmond and the Modern Lovers. Yeah. <laughs> Let's have George Formby. George yeah. Formby. Yeah. You know? yeah. Um, it, uh, it, I think one of the um, records people probably associate with the Second World War more than any other is Lily Marlene and, yeah. uh, which is which is a really fascinating phenomenon because it because it crosses uh, uh, borders doesn't it and Absolutely. boundaries and, and, and sort of transmits itself to, to all the armies in Europe um, that that uh, uh, that is such a curious story and such a curious um, uh, 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 cultural moment because you do get it does it does underline an idea that that everyone's everyone's the same really all over the world that they're they're just soldiers in armies doing their thing um and of course the 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 nazi goebbels has a terrible problem with lily marlene because it's popular um it's it's popular with the allies um and so tries to close it down realizes he can't because popular culture is actually the thing that German, the Nazis are always worried about is upsetting their domestic audience. And that's a surefire way of doing it, is taking a pop record off the radio. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, what, do you, what do you think of the Lily Marlena story, how that fits into the... Well, it, it just... What it proves is just the appeal of, of a song. I mean, it's a great song. It's a great song. It's a great tune. It's got a great vibe about it, as, yeah. <laughs> as yeah. we would call it nowadays, you know. It's, you know, I'm thinking about you, Lily Marlene. Mm. I'm far away from you, you know. And so if soldiers were permitted their five minutes of abject self-pity <laughs> and wallow in sentiment, that was the perfect vehicle yeah. to do it, yeah. you know. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass.
Are you ready for heart-stopping, toe-tingling, coma-inducing levels of drama and romance? Okay, great. Well, you can find it all included with Prime Video. Check out Expat starring Nicole Kidman, The Idea of You starring Anne Hathaway, and the history-bending romanticy My Lady Jane, which will leave you speechless forever. Or till the end of the episode. Find your happy place. Prime Video. Restrictions apply. See Amazon.com slash Amazon Prime for details. Um, but it's interesting, this thing about, about stuff going back and forth um, between the sides, because Glenn Miller, of course, you know, came to Britain in the late 40s. To, you know, was brought over at Eisenhower's pretty much yeah. command, you know, yeah. direct instruction to, to join the American forces on, on mainland Europe and to start broadcasting, uh, you know, because they'd have their own radio setups. And that would be stuff that would be heard by American soldiers and also by German soldiers. Yeah. So they do a lot of things translated into German as well, you know. So, and so you're, you're cre- creating the conditions of a, you really ought to surrender, you know. This is a more pleasant place to surrender. The, yeah. don't, do it, don't do it in the East, you know. Yes. Probably slightly less broadcasting going on there, you know. Yeah. Uh, and Glenn Miller, you know, famously did his last ever, last ever work at Abbey Road and get on, before getting on a plane and not that far from here. Probably. Well, his last show at Bedford Corn Exchange, which for some reason they're keen on telling the artists to play there. Oh, really? Play here and you'll die. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, uh, should we... Do, would people like to ask questions? We've got... Que- oh, yes. Yes, we, so here comes John. Here we go. Thank you very much. Do you think some of the appeal is that these songs are easy to learn and sing along with with other people? Yes. You mean that, yeah, it's choral. Yeah, I think definitely. Definitely. I think that definitely applied to the, you know, the Vera Lynn songs and, and the Gracie Fields and so forth. It was, it was very much... In fact, it would have been considered odd if you didn't sing along almost at, at that point, you know. Final verse. Now's your chance. Yeah. Join in. Kind yeah, of thing. I mean the, the coward, the sort of coward song, standing contrast to that because yeah, there you can do that. You, no, can't, no. you can't sing along with that. Well, there was an effort down here to do that. <laughs> yes, but I mean, sorry, just one further thing. I think that whole generation, the wartime generation, which I only remember through my parents and so forth, that there was nothing in the world better than a good sing song. Nothing. You can go through the whole year nowadays and nobody will mention a good sing-song yeah. to you. Well, yeah, no. Colonel Bogey. Colonel Bogey. Well, the, you know, the, I, I mainly know Colonel Bogey through um, Bridge on the River Kwai yeah. or Bridge on the River Y. And yeah. so, you probably know more about it than I do. Um, what, are you referring to the profane verses? Of course. Of course you are. Sung by so many soldiers. Oh, right. And, uh, which version do you know? <laughs> the floor is yours, sir. <laughs> later, later. <laughs> Hitler's only got one ball. Yeah. Goering has two, but rather small. Yeah. Himmler has something similar. Has yeah. Doesn't somebody have no balls at all? Poor go balls. There's no balls at okay, all. Right. Do you know? One's in the Albert Hall. Okay, right. We're, we're crowdsourcing the lyrics for. Uh, yeah, you're probably in breach of copyright, you know. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, uh, John, there's one down the middle there. 
Um, I just wanted to uh, connect um, Teddy Bear's Picnic with Lily Marlene and this accent. Um, uh, Jimmy Kennedy, um, who wrote the words for Teddy Bear's Picnic and the Hokey Cokey, did the English words for Lily Marlene. Oh, right. And while he's with the Royal Artillery in the, with the BEF, he writes the words to We'll Hang Out the Washing on the Siegfried Line. Wow. Um, so I just... I just wanted to know if you come across Jimmy Kennedy and whether anybody else is producing... It's a name I've come across. I, I, I probably don't know as much about it as you, about him w- as you do. Just wondering if any other music, like We'll Hang Out the Washing, is actually coming from the troops rather than being uh, produced That's a at good home. question. That's a good question, and I, I wish I had a good answer, and I don't. <laughs> but I think it's a fair, fair point. We're going to hang out our washing on the Greek Siegfried line. They never did, did they? Well, the, yeah, I mean, it depends what you mean by the Siegfried line, and we could... <laughs> that's the talk at half past four <laughs> with James Holland. Um, further, further back, the lady there. Hi, yeah, I was wondering if we just, aside from Glenn Miller, um, comment on a little bit more of what the encounter was with the American musicians arriving here and the American tastes of the GIs arriving here in Britain. Well, yeah, I mean, obviously the the um, the GIs were. It, it was it, if you're a young woman in Britain, it was always better to get to invited to a dance in American Air Force base, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah, because uh, the music would be hot up and the, you know they'd have you know british dance music during this period is quite polite yes it you know it's quite regimented yeah and it has a charm american music start, is starting to be hotter yeah at, at that point um when you get the the um the army air force band comes over with uh, with glenn miller they're first of all billeted in chelsea aren't they yeah and that's Chelsea at the time was bomb alley wasn't it because yeah. of the the um, revenge weapons or yeah. Yeah, whatever yeah, yeah. were coming over and so they very quickly relocated them to, uh, to to Bedford but you know that's the beginning of the you know the the influx of however many young Americans it was pre D-Day that's the beginning of the British fascination with America yeah. that leads to the Beatles. And what, what happens in jazz music is the Americans are spending a lot more, you know, dance music as a sort of mutation of jazz music is hugely subsidised during the war by the American government. And then when the war ends and the subsidy, they pull the plug on it, you get the, the jazz music collapses into, into smaller groups and that's where bebop yeah. comes from as a reaction to sort of the end of the golden era of dance music. It's quite an interesting point. It killed jazz as dance music. Yeah, it did. Yeah, it completely killed jazz. I'd never music. thought of that yeah. before. Yeah, you know, because the, during the twenties, thirties, and forties, jazz was dance music. Yeah, and after that, it became kind of chin stroking. Chin, chin stroking music, basically because the the money ran out. Yeah, <laughs> fair point. Here he comes. It's a long way in this tent, isn't it? You mentioned uh, Gracie Fields. They're actually running an advert on the telly at the moment using one of her old songs, The Girl That Owns the Spring. Oh! Um, so it just shows you how popular it still is, and people still associate it with her. But it's also, 
great old records. And I mean, a lot of these things are great old records. Yeah. They've got a texture to them yep. that you can't do. You can't make it any other way. You couldn't put musicians and technicians in the studio and make a record now that sounded like the biggest expedition in the world. You couldn't do it. Technology is kind of too good. You know, records are products of their moment, you know, of, of what the technology was capable of doing yeah. at the time. And that's what makes them really magical, you know, that they, they transport you back, you know. So, uh, at the classic case, uh, we played Al Boley before, um, Moonlight the Stars and You by Al Boley mm. is the tune that Stanley Kubrick uses in The Shining. Yeah. When he wants to summon the yeah. ghoulish ballroom with, yeah. you know, frightening looking Jack Nicholson in yeah. the front row and so forth. You know, nothing takes... Of course, I say takes you back because none of us remember it. Yeah. But we kind of feel that we do. Yeah. You know, so you listen to these records for the Second World War, you get near to, to the feelings that people probably had when they were listening to them at the time. Yeah. And then one, one more down the front here. Yeah, hi, the bluebirds over the white cliffs of Dover. I believe it was an American composer. Yes, it was. Uh, but what's your theory? Because he, he wasn't aware there were no bluebirds in the United <laughs> Kingdom. Does it refer to the RAF? <laughs> I, I, I probably, like in most you know, great songs, they just come to the person who writes. Sounds them. good. It sounds yeah. good. It's like a nightingale singing, in, do. nightingale yeah. singing in Barclay Square. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, That's yeah. unlikely. Yeah. You know. Yeah. <laughs> I know. Chattanooga, Chattanooga yeah. Choo Choo didn't leave from the station that it's referred to in the song. But they go, you see. I mean, I, that, also, that is musicians. They're yeah. disorganised people. And <laughs> I was just going to add oh, yes, uh, Lily Marlene. There's a brilliant opening sequence to Play Dirty, a Michael Caine film overlooked because Michael Caine hated the uh, filming conditions, but it's one of his best films. But the opening sequence is plays two so, versions. So what film is that? Play Dirty. Oh, okay. Oh, I don't think I've seen that. that. And there's one right at the... John, you've... you've <laughs> shoe leather. Come on, John. <laughs> Look, he's the company runner, isn't he? That's what it is. I, I wondered to what extent the birth of rock and roll was a, a musical inevitability when you think about, and you might have partially answered it, when you think about the genesis of sort of dance music, or to what extent was it driven by people's experiences of the war? So in other words, to simplify it, like would we have had rock and roll without the Second World War? Well, I suppose you wouldn't have had rock and roll without teenagers. Hmm. And, you know... And, and, and because you suddenly had a large public who spent money who didn't have to wear uniforms. Yeah. And that's, that's a product of... But that's also a product of um, what the Second World War does to the American economy, you know, in the sense of it's the, an extension of the New Deal, uh, yeah. uh, re-injection injection of tons of cash into the American economy yeah. that then transforms it into a consumer society. So I think, absolutely, there'd be, there'd be no rock and roll without the Second World War because of because of what happens to the American economy and society in the ten year in the ten years that followed. It's kind of ten years to the dot that you get you get rock and roll after yeah, the Second yeah. World War really in in, it, in its full manifestation. You've also not 
you've not got everyone in the army. You know, um, the, the teenagers have... I mean, there's only one... Well, you can count the fingers of two hands. Yeah. The members of, of the kind of great rock and roll generation who actually served, in, apart from... I'm, not, I'm talking about the 60s. Yeah. Who actually served in the force. Bill Wyman is the only rolling yes, stone. Yes, he did his national service. Did his national service. Yeah. The aircraftsman Bill Perks. Yeah. And of course, he's still with us. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, what made the Beatles, and it wasn't clear to them as they were growing up, that they were... They didn't have to do national service. So yeah. suddenly you can go off to Hamburg and do whatever you do. Yeah. Hearing Noel Sorry. Coward singing about not being beastly to the Nazis and songs like um, Arthur Askey uh, singing about thank you, Mr. Hess, for dropping in, um, which is one of my personal favourites. It's, it's follow on from the gen other gentleman's question, but are those typical of, do you think, a British sense of... Um, how they approach serious issues such as the war. I mean, the, Britain was right up to its neck at the time that um, Hess dropped into the UK. Well, I think, I think it, it, it's typical of kind of British, British familiarity with whatever they thought was their, you know, these characters, yeah. these kind of... They were, they were like figures out of low cartoons, weren't they? Yes, really? yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? You know, that's, that's the stuff that the newspapers dealt with. And, uh, and so there's, it's just a very British thing that if you want to, if you want to bring somebody down to size, laugh at them. You know? yeah. Yeah. And, um, and nobody ever went broke by you know, making people laugh in the UK. Unless you can tell me different. That, no. <laughs> we, 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 comedians are desperate for bad times. <laughs> Right. Simple truth. It's recession-proof, supposedly. So good luck, everyone. Um, right. Well, um, I, I, I think I'd like to thank David for, for coming to talk to us about pop music and, and for us to, to scratch our chins at the question, the questions the Second World War throws up in a com completely different frame. I mean, not once have we had to talk about, um, you know, wing loading or um, or calibers of anti-tank weapons and projectile velocities. I mean, there's plenty of that, isn't there? We've got enough of that. So a huge thank you to David. Thanks for listening. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. There's tons more of this to come. We hope you've enjoyed it. And we hope you enjoyed the festival if you went. And if you didn't, this is what you'll get. Go next time. Hello listeners, it's Anita Arnand here from the Goal Hanger sister podcast, Empire, which I host along with... Me, William Dalrymple, and we are here to tell you about our new series on the founding fathers, the men who made America. We wanted to look at the men who actually founded the country, who dreamt the dream, who wrote the words upon which a country would be born. What were they like? What made them do what they did? What did they actually believe in? And how did they come to play the role that they did in the American Revolution and the creation of America? What really interested me about this was the contradictions. I mean, we expect these men to be great figures. We've seen the portraits in the galleries. We, we know the faces from the banknotes, but they're deeply complex figures. But in that, and in that blend of contradiction and intellectual power and writing genius and curiosity and raw ability lies the nuance and complexity that allows us to understand them. And the United States is in many ways a reflection of them, their beliefs, their experiences. These are the men who wrote the Constitution. These are the men who created the federal system in every way. They are totally 
fundamental to what American politics looks like today. It all goes back to this extraordinary group of men. Yeah, and they have rip-roaring yarns as well, let me tell you. So if you want to know why America is the way it is and who the men were who made it, you can listen by searching Empire wherever you get your podcasts.